Good evening, everyone. Hola. Hola, Doug. It's great to see you again. This is our last class. Yay. Am I too loud? I know I'm too loud. The microphone's the loud one. I'm okay. Kurt, can you fix that for us, please? Is that better? Yeah? All right, because I will be screaming a lot tonight. All righty. Uh, those of you who are visiting us for the first time, what we do at the beginning is we just ask a question and we just start uh, engaging with one another. And the, quest, the question tonight is going to be, how far back can you trace your genealogy? Together with your groups, try to name people from each line or each level as far back as possible. Go for it. Of course, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's see who was able to trace their genealogy the farthest back. This is going to look like an auction. Let's see, uh, four gen- raise your hand if you were able to trace four generations back. Oh my goodness, that's great. Four generations back? What about five? Five. Tommy. Don. Six? Seven? Eight? Fifteen? Ron, are you sure? Are you cheating? Wow. Each generation? That's wonderful. Tommy, same for you? (gasps) Yes. Prove it. Please prove it. Evidence. Okay, well, as you can see, it's rare that... People can trace genealogies all the way far back. We're going to get to that at some point today, but thank you so much. I I trust you. I believe you. (laughs) Kind of. Let's pray. Let's pray because I do want to believe you and you want to believe me tonight. So we need uh, the Holy Spirit with us. So, Father God, thank you for today. Thank you because you've given us the ability to go places, to show up. You're the one that brings us together. You are the reason why we come here, why we want to study, why we want to learn more. Pray that your spirit comes down and just inspires us, guides us, nourishes us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you because it's available to us. So be with us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anyone here who would like to give us a quick recap? I've been doing that for you, but that was it. Now it's your turn. Anyone that would like to give us? We have Doug and Kathy are visiting us for the first time, and they need a recap, right? (laughs) They do. Anyone? We've learned so much from each character, right? We spent time with Naomi's, an entire day with Ruth, an entire day with Boaz. Does anyone want to give just some highlights from each one of them? Come on. Be brave. Salo has a microphone in case you need it. Who was it? Can you raise your hand, whoever started speaking? 
They did chesed. That's great. Okay, anything, any highlights about Naomi? She was an immigrant. She was basically disenfranchised. She was a widow. Long suffering. And we got to, uh, we got to know her through her suffering, right? What about uh, Ruth? She was a widow too. What else? An immigrant, a foreigner. She was a daughter-in-law. She was loyal. Mm-hmm. She lost her sons. She was a Moabite, and that was a huge deal back then. What was that, Sarah? She. She lost her husband, her sons, and everything. But yet, she had an opportunity to start over, yet she chose to follow Naomi. And there was no future for her. What about Boaz? The kinsman redeemer. You're just giving me facts. <laughs> he was wealthy. Well respected. Honorable. Very kind. Generous man. The Hebrew, do you remember the Hebrew word for that? Chayil. Who got it? Don? Chayil. Awesome. Well, that's the recap you get. Uh, <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I'm sorry, Alberta? Did he have a family? Most probably. We saw that for a man to be that respected in a society, most probably he would have had sons because that was the number one thing why men were honored. So maybe he had a wife, maybe he had two, maybe he had more, or maybe he was a widow. But he wasn't a single man, I don't think so. Remember, I, was, I kept just... I'm sorry? He was in the line of Jesus. Well, Jesus was in his line, but yes. All righty, let's get to the class. This class is going to be slightly different than the rest because we already spent time with each one of the characters. And we've only seen uh, three tools. Remember them? Context. Whoa, what was that? Culture. That's not, that's part of context. The other one is the meaning of the Hebrew words and in, the, in their original language, right? All right. Well, what we're going to do today is that we will still have the same elements that we've had each class. A little bit of teaching, study tools, and discussion time. But the discussion time is not going to be at the end. It's going to be all throughout the class because we're going to see a very powerful tool today. We're going to take some time so that you can work with it, try to use it as a group. Does that sound okay? Great. Okay, so the first study tool tonight, which is the fourth one in the course, is reading the Bible with a Christocentric or Christ-centered perspective. This tool doesn't really need a huge definition because it basically means that whatever we study or whatever we interpret, um, we need to do it in light of Jesus. Usually we do that from the beginning 
in the middle and at the end. But because we go to Jesus so quickly, I'm not saying that's wrong, we forget to analyze each person as a human being because that's when we can fully relate to them. So this tool or this perspective is important because it helps us have an integral or a a cohesive, I like that word, a cohesive understanding of whatever it is that we're studying. As we all know, the Bible is just one book, and it is made out of several different books, right? And although each one of them has a particular purpose or a particular genre, third study tool we studied, when you put them together, they end up telling just one story. Is just one. And what is the thread that we can see all throughout the Bible? There's one thread. Yes, exactly. God's salvation plan through Christ. So if Jesus is the thread that holds the entire canon together, that means that every book of the Bible either points to Jesus or reflects back on Jesus. And if it's the Gospels, it's Jesus himself, the manifestation of Jesus. Now, it isn't always clear to see which kind of connection um, we can find to Jesus. But the more you study the Bible, the, the easier it gets and the easier it gets. And a good place to start is, with, is just with the natural uh, division of the book. Old Testament, New Testament. For the most part in the Old Testament, things will point to Jesus. And books in the New Testament will reflect back on him. Now, this is a very, very simplistic way of looking at it because it's not always going to be the case. For instance, in Revelations, we see that the book of Revelations points to Jesus' second coming. And some epistles do the same. But there is a little model that a scholar called Norman Geisler, he put it together so that every time we study the Bible, any book, we can anticipate what the connection is going to be. You see it on the screen. It's divided. We have, again, the, the, the first big division, Old Testament, New Testament, and then we have a second division, and that's pretty much the genres we looked, that we looked at. So we see that in the law, that's pretty much the foundation for Christ. So even though you can't see Christ explicitly when you read something as entertaining as Leviticus, you know that it's just grounding us in, in something that is to come. History is a preparation for Christ. We see what happened from the moment that God called Abraham, and then history starts to take place, and some events happen, and then there's the fall of the kingdom and the monarchy, and eventually Christ was going to come to redeem all the mess that happened in the past. Then poetry is an aspiration for Christ. We have words of wisdom. We have um, books you know, the sayings of Solomon, that if you do them, you will become more like Christ and you'll have tons of blessings in your life. We have books, uh, prophetic books, and those have expectations of Christ. Then in the New Testament, we have the Gospels, the, the, the manifestation of Christ. The book of Acts is a propagation of Christ. The epistles is an interpretation and application of Jesus' teachings. And then Revelation, finally, we have consummation in Christ. This is very helpful. You can just start with that. When the moment you, you open a book, you want to read it, you want to study it, you want to know where it's going. This is going to give you a huge, huge hint. Now, it sounds great. It sounds wonderful. 
But when you start reading, it's not always easy to find the particular connection to Christ, right? So what we're going to do now, I'm going to show you some, uh, some hints or more tiny little tools that will help you find those clear connections with Jesus. Sometimes we can find connections to Christ through prophecies, particularly the messianic prophecies. And those, are types, those types of prophecies are, are just predictions of, um, found in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus, of the Messiah, which means the anointed one. Now, all these prophecies vary in detail. Some simply talked about Jesus, about an anointed one that was going to come. And some others included particular details about his life, like how he was going to be born or the kind of teachings he was going to teach or the kind of death he was going to have or if he was going to be betrayed or not by his friends. Some examples are fine, for instance, in Isaiah 35, uh, six through, uh, 5 through 6 or 53 to 12, the Messiah was going to be betrayed, the, the Messiah be crucified, the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin, all those things. Does that make any sense? Okay, so now you're going to get together with your group and you're going to try to find more, at least five more messianic prophecies in the Bible that point us to Christ. This shouldn't be too hard because there's at least a hundred of them in the Bible. I'm sorry? Yeah, go to the Old Testament. Did, did you all bring your Bibles? Awesome. Now, just five to ten minutes, try to give us five more prophecies. How are you doing? Almost there? Do you have at least 15? <laughs> you have 91? <laughs> How many have you found? Seven over there? Seven or eight. Have you found at least one? No? Go to Isaiah. They're all there. <laughs> Go to Isaiah 53. And you'll see. True, and that would be cheating. Yes. Uh, Genesis. Okay, we got to get going. Um, Don, would you share? Don Finkel, would you share some with us, please? Uh, oh, sorry. The serpent, um, you, will, you will bruise, he will bruise your heel, but you will bruise him on the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Genesis 3.15. Yeah. Uh, Passover, Exodus twelve thirteen, the blood of the lamb. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, and then uh, God, prov the angel stops him and provides the uh, ram as a sacrifice. Genesis twenty two, eighteen. Mm-hmm. I'll stop there and let somebody else. Okay, those are more typologies. We're going to get to that, but they are connected to prophecy. We'll get to that. Uh, anyone else? Okay, I'm going to get going. You can start uh, writing a list of things for homework. 
Now, we won't have another class, but it's going to be between you and God. <laughs> no pressure. Okay, that's one way of um, finding a direct connection to, to Christ, wherever you are in the Old Testament. Another way is through symbolism. And biblical symbolism is when uh, figure language is used to symbolize a spiritual, a spiritual truth. That's like a tongue twister for me. Let me try again. When, a, when figurative language is used to symbolize truth. Woohoo! For instance, when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, Don, you were just talking about that. They were instructed to sacrifice a lamb. And that lamb had to be young and male and without defect. And today we know that the lamb was a symbol for Christ, right? Who would eventually be sacrificed as a ransom for our lives. So here, uh, the lamb is a symbol. Now, are there any other examples? I'm going to give you some because there's many. Of, of symbols that represent a spiritual truth. We have the image of a shepherd. That's a symbol of Christ, to Christ. We have a rock or a cornerstone. That's another symbol. We have um, the bread of life. The light of the world. I'm going to stop. And try to find more symbols that directly point us to Christ. Okay, you want to give me some symbols that you found? Anyone? Fortress, yep. Weight. Oh, the way, yes. Vine. What was that? First fruits, mm-hmm. Living water, that's more... Traditionally ascribed to the spirit, but that's a that's a symbol. Oh my goodness, I could not hear you. Bridegroom, right? Yes. All right, we have other symbols like sower, king, healer, a pearl, the bright morning star, prince of peace, the word. Advocate, high priest, righteous judge. There are so many symbols all over the Bible. When you see them, it's trying to tell us something about Christ. Now, other times, these connections, we will find them through typology. Now, in biblical studies, a type is a person or a thing or an event that foreshadows a greater truth or a greater thing or a greater event. Or a greater person. It's like a, a mini Jesus or a Jesus in process. Something, I, I want to see it that way. It's totally wrong, but it helps me. <laughs> Completely wrong. All throughout the Bible, we find human types uh, that resemble the God in its fullness. But an aspect of it that we, we are able to see and recognize. For example, we have Moses. He was a prophet. He was the, le the leader of the Israelites that delivered them from the Egyptians. Now, he only delivered a group, a specific group in a specific situation. But that's a Christ-like characteristic of a deliverer. Now, eventually Christ would come and he would deliver the entire humanity from all sin. See, it was, it's, it's a, a small part, a small image of 
It's like it's, there's potential in what we see in a type. Potential for um, Christ-like actions. We also have Melchizedek, who was a ruler, the only ruler. In ancient times, you were either a ruler or a priest, but not both. And Melchizedek was one weird ruler that was both. And that is a type for Christ, because Jesus would eventually the same, be our high, high priest, high priest and ruler. Now, Adam is a type of Christ, and Paul said that in Romans. Are there any other types? People whose actions or characteristics resemble those of Christ. John the Baptist. Boaz, obviously. Esther, David. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Joseph, yeah. He suffered unjustly and then he was exalted to save his brethren. Job. Job, the righteous sufferer. What about Jonah? Christ relates himself himself to Jonah in the Gospels. So there are so many types, too. And again, we see how through people, through actions, through symbols, through types, through a word, the Bible is constantly pointing us to Christ. Always, always, always. Boaz was a type for Christ. And that's, when we read the book of Ruth, that's where our minds go right away. And that's easy because Boaz is introduced as a kinsman, Redeemer. That is, that is an easy connection for us. Last week, we carefully analyzed his entire behavior, his actions, and we noted how he was truly a gentleman. I have a question for you. When you described a gentleman at the beginning of last class, how, how closely related was that definition to what we learned from Boaz? Related or were we far off? Very close. Okay. We know that uh, Boaz did not hold on to his fame or, or his wealth or his privilege or his comfort or his known ways of doing things to That is a Christ-like characteristic. He uh, looked out for Ruth. He looked out for Naomi. And even at the risk of losing it all, he could have lost it all. He didn't. But he didn't know that. Boaz was also a type of Christ in that he also understood the power of grace in a culture that was so bound by law and rules. Remember how he broke all the rules? Because the law said that Israelites should never, ever, ever help out a Moabite. Do no business with Moabites. Keep your distance. They do not belong to us. No Moabite will ever be part of the assembly of God. That's what the law said. Yet we see Boaz helping Ruth, letting her glean with the workers, regular workers, not behind the workers. He invites her to the table, unheard of. This woman asks him to marry her, unheard of. And he agrees. He went above and beyond for the sake of someone else. Huh? Good Samaritan. Yes, another type. And when we think of Samaritans today, 
Who are they? Yeah. Because they were mixed. Who are, who are looked down on today in this country? There's lots of people. We've been talking about then homeless, gay people, uh, Mexicans. <laughs> I can say that. And it's true. Now, Boaz understood the spirit of the letter. He was not limited. Um, sorry, the, the letter of the law. He was not limited by the letter of the law because he understood the spirit of the law. He understood the power of grace and the power of chesed above anything else. Now, when I was doing research of all the different types of Christ that we have in the Bible, almost every single scholar um, only included references and that, you know that that bugs me. <laughs> we just need to know. Someone's there, and I'm so glad. Who did that? Laura. But we, we think of types of Christ. We think of Moses. We think of Joseph. We think of Jonah. We think of Adam. But the book of Ruth taught us that women can also have um, qualities or titles of honor that were traditionally ascribed to men and men only. Do you remember that? I was used to describe Boaz as a man of honor. Who said it? Chayil. Yeah. Or English, hail. We can say that too. Chayil, a man of honor, was for hero-like qualities. 90% of the times, it was all about men. But what word did Boaz use when Ruth showed up out of the blue in the middle of the night at the threshing floor? He called her a Chayil woman which was also unheard of. And do you know where else in the Bible we find this chayil word, this word for, for a good man, a courageous man, a noble man? Proverbs 31. It's the chayil woman. Woo! Interesting, huh? You can read it as homework again, too. Okay, so one of the advantages, I know we're spending a lot of time in this tool, and it's okay because we already went over the story. Now we want to, you know, get some more information out of everything we already saw. One of the advantages of studying the Bible from a Christocentric perspective or a Christ-centered perspective is that, well, I consider this an advantage, at least for women, is that resemblance to Christ does not have to come through physical attributes. We can see Christ in any person regardless of their gender. Regardless of their race, their socioeconomic status, even their religion, we can find Christ in a Muslim person. And for some of you, I might be pushing the envelope, but I am not. In Ruth, we also find a type of Christ, but because Boaz's figure is so big in our mind, we forget that Ruth had so many so many characteristics similar to Christ. The kind of love and the kind of chesed that she showed to Naomi foreshadowed the kind of love and the kind of chesed that Christ was going to show for all of us. And now through this Christocentric reading of Ruth, we see that even don't find a single explicit reference to Christ in this story. Not one. We do find Christ-like characteristics all over the place. 
Now, when we go about in our own lives, when we are outside the church where not a lot of people talk about God, there might not be a single reference to Christ wherever you go. But based on this Christocentric reading of the Bible, each one of us becomes a type of Christ. And then it is up to us whether we want to show that or not. So Christ, wherever we go, there goes Christ with us. Hope that's helpful. Now that comment about Christ being in us and our actions being the ones that pretty much preach the gospel, that brings us back to our first class, our opening class, when we talked about the theology of this book. This book that does not give a lot of explicit descriptions of God's work and God's intervention in human history because all implicit in the actions of ordinary people, ordinary people who served as agents of God's love and faithfulness. This book is probably right below Esther. In Esther, we don't see God mentioned, right? And in this one, it's only in the prayers of people that we hear anything about God. The author does not mention God. But you hear Ruth saying, God bless you. Naomi saying, the Lord bless him, my kinsman redeemer. Boaz telling um, Ruth, the Lord bless you, my daughter. So they are invoking God, although the author is not even mentioning him. And as we know by now, all three characters played a key role in this story. And in one way or another, each of their actions released God's provision for his people. Whether the need was for food, for shelter, for protection, and even a child. It was through human actions. These human actions showed us chesed and how chesed is not always, quote-unquote, delivered through miraculous or jaw-dropping events. Most of the times we'll see chesed through tiny but powerful choices made on a day-to-day basis by ordinary people like you and I. Now let's do a, just a very quick recap of chesed because that's pretty much the main theme. And we were looking at each one of the characters and how they they did chesed to one another. When we read the text, we see that all of them use the word chesed as part of their speech. In in Ruth 1.8, when Naomi asks Ruth and Orpah to go back because there's no future for them in Israel, as go back, each of you, to your mother's home and may the Lord show you chesed there. Then when Naomi finds out Ruth uh, had gone to Boaz's field, she said, The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing chesed to the living and the dead. Again, chesed. Finally, when Boaz finds Ruth next to him, he says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This chesed that you're showing me is greater than that which you showed earlier. So they're all, chesed is implied in all of their speeches. Chesed was wished upon someone without knowing exactly how that chesed would arrive. It was hoped for. It was wished for. But they didn't didn't quite know the outcome. 
Now I'm going to go back again to all those three scenes. When Naomi sends back, um, sends Ruth back to Moab, she hopes she will find Chesed in her land. But little did she know that Ruth was going to show Chesed to her in her own land. That's, a, that's our first twist. Now when Ruth went to Boaz's field, she hoped to find provision from God. And Boaz said, oh, may the Lord bless you. May you find chesed. But little did he know that he was going to be the one showing chesed to her. So watch out whenever you wish good things for people. Because God might use you and exactly you to do that thing you're hoping for. Then when Naomi found out that Ruth had been to Boaz's field. Remember, she was shocked. And she said, oh, my God. In Hebrew. She plotted a plan to show Chesed to Ruth through Boaz's companionship. She thought, ooh, he's going to redeem her. Ruth, you know, you've been working with this man and he's been kind to you and you're a widow and you need a better future. She starts building her case like that because she wants Boaz to be with Ruth so that she can be okay. But little did she know that Ruth was going to twist the plan, reverse a few things, and asked to have a child from Boaz so that Chesed could be shown to Naomi through Boaz again. So see how this interesting, it's a mess, but it's interesting and it's cool. <laughs> through the actions of these three characters, God changed the course of Provision was given to those that needed it. Hope was regained for those that had lost it. And God was glorified through every single decision the big ones the medium ones and the small ones now we're not done with our study tools we have one more before we're done with the class and that's understanding genealogies the book of Ruth ends with a very very interesting genealogy so I thought it would be important to address it and to give you a tool for whenever you encounter other genealogies in the Bible. What do you think is the purpose of genealogies? Connection, yep. Validation, yep. Yep. Well, that is in, that's definitely the purpose in ancient genealogies. But for us, many of us, when we try to trace our own genealogy, we start, you know, with mom and dad, grandparents, great-grandparents, and then we just go from there. And except for two wonderful men that we have here that can go back to the 1200s, <laughs> I can't go back more than five generations. And I think five is a lot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I will repeat that when, it's, when I'll talk about that for people listening to this. Now, very few of us, or at least in my case, uh, I can't go back a century. And that's because I am a future-oriented person. And most of us modern minds, we are future-oriented, whereas ancient people were past-oriented. Where you came from was more important than where you were headed. We're all about success, what we're going to achieve, where we're going to get we're children of the enlightenment, where reason and precision are of utmost importance. So if you start to trace back 
Doug, you just asked that. If you miss one, what's going to happen? Nothing happens. But if we miss one link, that's it. We're doing it wrong because it's got to be precise in our modern minds. But that wasn't how it worked in, um, in ancient times. In fact, they were very, uh, there were many different reasons why someone would introduce a genealogy, particularly in written text. And let me give you some examples. Sometimes genealogies were written to build a historical bridge connecting Israel throughout uh, periods of time in history. Sometimes it was to legitimize the position or royal royal lineage of a specific person. Sometimes it was to claim or to reclaim a promise given to a family or clan. Remember when people were in despair and then they call out to God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, like, you promised them. Don't forget that. Or when Solomon prays and says, Father, you promised this to David, my father. Make sure you make it happen. Sometimes it was to assure a sense of national continuity and unity in a period of national despair. Many of the books that were written, written in the exilic period when the, king, when the monarchy fell and they were exiled, people forgot where they came from. And so genealogies would help them trace back their ancestors, their nationality, their unity, their identity. Now, since genealogies had many different purposes... Not all genealogies were constructed in the same way. Some people inserted an important name here and there every couple centuries because the the point was just to show continuity. Others gave very detailed genealogies to prove legitimate ancestry or lineage to someone famous. For instance, in 1 Chronicles, we have the longest longest genealogy in the entire Bible. It takes up to nine chapters. I have, a, I read, um, one of the Bibles that I read is one that you read it in the entire year. That I had to go over this. And it took me like a week to go over genealogy. And I would just, I would just flip the pages going, I'm sure there's purpose in this. But it's boring. It's really boring. I don't think I remember a single one of them because the purpose is not to remember each name, but to know there was continuity. <laughs> um, no, I don't, I don't remember. It's nine chapters. All I remember, I do remember something. It starts with... It starts with Adam. I, I said it in... And then it's all throughout Abraham. And then when you have Jacob's or Israel's sons, it's the genealogy of each one of them. So it's, it's not a linear genealogy. It's just different sections. And then you, they trace Judah and then King David's genealogy all the way through a few, some of the offspring of uh, King David. So see, I remember a few things. So that's the longest. In the book of Ruth, we have one of the shortest ones. At the very end of the book, and it's interesting because it only includes 10 names. And the span of time that it covers is roughly 500 years. And this was not the time when they lived for like 900 years. 
Our last class, remember, we ended with uh, the birth of baby Obed and how although Ruth had given birth to him, the baby was considered to be Naomi's son, right? That's how we ended. Now let's pick up the story from there just to finish the last part of the book. And it's uh, Ruth 4, verses 72. When the women shouted, Naomi has a son, the author included just a, free, a, a few extra details to that sentence. And it said, the, the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Why would the author include only genealogy? It connects the story to know to the king of Israel. Remember that one of the purposes was continuity and connection. So if they skipped a few hundred people, it was okay. But also another purpose was to um, legitimize a position and also to give honor to people because they were being remembered where someone else, whereas someone else was not. So one way of doing that of focusing on one person and why their name was important was when the name was at the very end of the genealogy list, that probably meant that the whole list was validating their position. Now, we know that this book was not written during the time of Judges. The book opens up saying, in the time when the Judges rule. But if it ends with King David, that means the author knew that David existed. And that was few years down the road so maybe one of the purposes of the book was to legitimize the political position of david and also there was a special way of honoring people through genealogies and that was by putting your name in now let's see who we have in the seventh position and at the end of the list we have Boaz, and we have David. So in one way, the author is saying there's reward for behaving like Boaz behaved. That, um, that position was one that gave you honor, and the tenth position or the end of the list was one that honored you as well and also uh, legitimized you. I think that's the next one, legitimized you. Yes. So as you can see, this genealogy had at least a twofold purpose, to recognize Boaz as an ancestor and honor him, and also to legitimize David's monarchy. And that is huge, because how did this story begin? The story began with the lives of two women, two no ones, two immigrants, who had no future, no hope, and no place in society, no man right next to him to speak for them. They were the almanas. Remember that word in Hebrew? Who that, that who is unable to speak. Yet these women spoke all over the place. Place they ended up belonging to the society. 
That's just a huge, huge contrast. Being a no one to part of the lineage of the king of Israel. That's, that's huge. In just four short chapters. This book is tiny. In just four chapters, this skillful author managed to take us from tragedy to triumph. Without losing sight of all the details and the challenges and the emotions that each person felt. Ruth is a piece of art. In just four chapters, we were able to go from bitterness to joy. From emptiness, especially emptiness in the womb, to fullness. From barrenness to fertility. From death to life. The book starts with the death of Elimelech and his sons. And Elimelech means my God is king. And it ends with a king appointed by God. So there's all these con- weird connections to make a big contrast. And the, the hinge, the thing that hinges everything together was chesed. So w- when chesed is brought into the formula, into the equation of anything we do, we end up releasing no how far they are going to go. We have no for you would be in what kind of genealogy would you like your name to be included? Most of us will never get to see that genealogy. Most of us will never get to see or to hear the honor or the recognition But as we just saw it in this book, it was always worth it to go above and beyond. It was worth it to break the rules and to lose privilege or wealth or recognition so that someone else could be privileged. And in this triangle we saw on the the screen, every time someone showed chesed, they, they had the potential of losing someone, I mean something or someone. But because they were able to do that in a perfect world, in a Trinitarian world where everything works coordinated, you are looking out for someone because someone else is looking out for you. And we need to trust that that's going to happen at some point because God is still behind the scenes informing the actions that we have. So I hope this was a helpful class. Was it a different class like I promised? Yep. You have a question. Absolutely. Oh, it's like having a in the United States of America. So you had repeated names. Yes, to read Matthew. Yes, to see another example. Where it says, Jacob had Joseph, Mary's husband. Mm-hmm. And Mary who gave birth to Jesus. Yeah, so the question... That lineage, mm-hmm. we always think of that big Joseph that did so much, that got buried in a pit and came out and did all this stuff. Yes. But this Joseph is just carpenter. Yeah. And he was also in the lineage of Jesus. 
So you, you, there were many Josephs, many Jacobs. Names were often repeated. Um, yes, done. Yes, it was to see a different kind of genealogies. Because that one, in this one, we had King David being legitimized. Now we have that genealogy where Jesus is the one whose uh, genealogy is being traced. Because Matthew was mostly a book written for the, for the Hebrews, for the, for the Hebrew mind, unlike Luke. Mm-hmm. Yep. I do not know. Don is asking for the audio. I do not know the reason why. I can look it up and get back with you, but I'm not going to make something up. <laughs> Any other questions before we go? Ron. Did Boaz only have one wife? So David had many wives, and the question is, did all the rest had just one? Yeah. Is, is oh, it, no. Is it only the kings that, have, that had more than one wife? No. Uh, in last class, in our last class, we saw that it was perfectly okay to marry another woman, because in this world that was so patriarchal, a woman could not... So if... She wanted to do anything if she wanted to do anything legal. Her husband or her father or her son had to do it on her behalf. If they wanted to arrange a marriage, the man had to do it for her. And so if there was a disenfranchised woman, like a widow, she needed a man in her life to kind of do things on behalf of her. So to this day, in, at least in the Muslim world, It's perfectly okay to marry more than one woman. But in modern times, I'm going to tell uh, just a brief story about my trip to Turkey. I went to visit a good friend of mine. And we were talking about religion and we were talking about Islam. We were talking about Christianity. And then I said, now, just tell me, I just don't know what to think about you being able to marry more than one woman. It just sounds so unfair. And he said, oh, I get that all the time. I understand where you're coming from, he said. But what people don't always think about is that the condition under which you can marry another woman is if you can fully support her, if you can just do anything she needs or speak up on her behalf, and if you can spend, if you can distribute your time among your wives in exact uh, slots. So... (laughs) It is like an adding another woman. It means adding a lot, you know, everything. You, you need to do everything for her. So he said, I know I can do that, but I'm not going to do it. Now, I don't know why he ended up saying this, but most probably many, many men in that genealogy had many wives. We know Abraham did. Jacob did. And we don't think about it twice because we, we're used to reading that. But when we, when we hear it about Boaz, who most of us think was this awesome, wonderful, great-looking bachelor, 
and then we just burst the bubble. No, he was probably an old man married to one or two or three or a widowed man. That was a, a normal, traditional custom back then. And again, the fact that their names are not included in, geneal- in a genealogy does not mean that they were not there. Um, the purpose is to show continuity or legitimation. Any other questions? Yes, if you, if you want to, um, Emily, can you click after the, I was just going to thank you after this, but I'll, I was wondering if someone was going to ask that question. Can you go to the last one? That is Matthew's genealogy. And in that genealogy, we have, it's, it's very symmetrical. And it's, you start with Abraham all the way to David. And that's from patriarchal times to monarchy. That's one period of time. And then you have from David to, well, to Josiah. And that's from monarchy until the carrying away into Babylon. So there's hope. There's a promise given. But then there's a section. There's a king. And people do what they think is right in their own eyes. And the monarchy and everything falls down. And the plan falls apart. And then there's a last section that is the returning from captivity all the way to the final answer that that is Jesus. So that's one of the purposes of this genealogy. And in there, that's when we have three women included. You are right. All right. Thank you so much for coming for four consecutive Wednesdays. I hope that this, the tools that we saw today uh, will be helpful as you study other books of the Bible. If you have any other questions, you can shoot me an email. And I will have an automated response saying the class is over. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) All right.